0: find your Bibles or turn your Bibles on, go to Exodus chapter 25. Let's pray together and ask for God's help. Father, thank you once again, the privilege we have to be together this morning and to sing from our hearts, to be with one another, now to hear from your word. Pray for those who are not able to be with us this morning. God, I pray you'd encourage them, strengthen them, help us to care for one another well here in this body. And Lord, I pray now as we open your word, just pray very specifically, given these chapters that we're going to look at, God, I pray, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. Feed us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me set the stage for us this morning by reading... The first nine verses of Exodus chapter 25, you follow along as I read, this is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold silver and bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen goats hair tanned rams skins goat skins acacia wood oil for the lamps spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece and let them Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Verse 8 again. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You'll notice there in verses 8 and nine, two different words for this structure that God is telling Moses to build. In verse eight, it's called a sanctuary, which means a holy place, a place different, set apart from the rest of the camp. And in verse nine, it's called a tabernacle, which means dwelling place, which was not to say that God lived within the four walls of this tent, but that he was going to dwell among his people. Those two words capture what this structure was all about, God's holiness and God's nearness. Or as theologians sometimes put it, his transcendence and his imminence, his closeness. That I, the holy God, May dwell in their midst, maybe with them. Last week I reminded us, I wanted to make sure that this was clear that God rescues us not just to get us out of something, but to bring us into something. We are rescued out of slavery and into this life giving. Hope giving, joy giving, connection with God. God didn't set Israel free so it could go be on its own, invent its own identity, design its own way to live. God didn't set you free so you could just live on your own however you want to. No, God sets us free so that we might be his treasured possession. And live in the good of that relationship. That we might walk with God and enjoy him. And all that God intended for us to enjoy when he made us full life, real life. He saved us so that we might be with him and love him and be loved by him. I believe this is one of the most important tasks that we have as Christians. To remind ourselves and one another and to share with the world, the goodness of being brought back into connection and relationship with God, exposing all of the empty promises of so-called freedom and finding our true joy as human beings in nearness with God. And that's what these chapters in Exodus are all about, although you might not immediately think so when you read them. You might remember last week I reminded you that the Old Testament is like a big finger pointing forward to Jesus. And that is true in a dramatic, very pointed way in these chapters that we want to look at this morning, Exodus 25 through 31. I want us to see that here. They are occupied entirely with the tabernacle, the structure that God has told Moses to build out there in the desert and that the Israelites were to carry with them as they made their way to and then into the promised land. You see, Moses received more than the law on Mount Sinai. He received detailed, and I mean like really detailed instructions about this tabernacle and all of its furnishings and how everything was to be built and made. And throughout these chapters, God repeatedly reminds Moses to build everything exactly according to the pattern that God showed him on the mountain. Look at the last verse, chapter 25. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. And he says that several times in these chapters. Apparently, everything mattered. Everything had significance. You know, it wasn't really a physically imposing structure. The whole thing could fit very easily in this room. The the tabernacle itself would be about half the size of our lobby. So it wasn't that big, but it was full of meaning. Let me just flip over with me to chapter 29. Chapter 29 and look at verse 43. God says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, it all had to do with God's presence in their midst. God being with them, wanting to be close to them, them close with him. The whole thing was a tangible symbol of God's presence there. With them. And it's all part of the big finger pointing toward Jesus. Now Moses and the Israelites, they don't see that connection. They can't. But that is God's purpose. He's revealing truth a little at a time. He's preparing them, showing them in in shadowy form what will come to full reality in Jesus. I, I want you to listen to something that we find in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. This There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God. Who born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word, that English word dwelt, do you know what it is? It's the translation of the Hebrew word, or the Greek word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God with us, the Bible makes this explicit connection between the tabernacle in Exodus and the coming of Christ, God coming to dwell with us so that we could experience and enjoy nearness, closeness with Him. Now, why is that important that we make that connection? Because it shows that there is a grand purpose, a grand educational and preparatory purpose behind this tabernacle. Listen, the Bible Bible is not a random collection of writings, as I heard somebody say recently. It is one story. It's God's story. It's a story that is being worked out in history by God and recorded by God using human authors. The apostle Peter tells us that these writers spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit that's what we have here. God's story. So the Bible is the grand story of what God is doing. We could summarize it in four acts. Creation, fall, consummation. or I'm sorry, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The first act, creation, is found in the first two chapters of Genesis. The second act, fall, just one chapter, Genesis chapter 3. The fourth act Consummation is referenced throughout the Bible, but is presented to us in that last book of the Bible, Revelation, where we read about God's people being brought into what he's promised, this place of perfection and and happiness and rest. But the third act, redemption... That occupies the vast majority of the Bible. All of the Old Testament promising and anticipating and preparing for God's great redemption in Jesus. And all of the New Testament announcing and explaining God's redemption in Jesus. So now back to our passage here in Exodus. The way these chapters anticipate redemption is through these these shadowy things. That's how the book of Hebrews describes them, as shadows, copies foreshadowing the realities. Speaking of this very thing, the tabernacle, Hebrews speaks of it as a copy and shadow of a great heavenly reality. And so, as we read this, we should be looking, our eyes alert, asking, what what is God showing them? What truth is God revealing? What does God want us to know about his salvation and what that brings us? This this tabernacle and all of its furniture is designed to educate us. It all has to do with how God is redeeming and forming a people and how God intends to be with his people. And it all points to Jesus. Jesus the main way it's pointing to Jesus is by telling us that God accomplished a redemption that opens the way for him to be present with his people and for them to be with him. Near. Close. God desires to be with us and for us to be with him and he has made a way for that to be. So as we look here at what can seem like these Pedantic instructions about wooden frames and sockets and clasps and curtains and poles and measurements and all of the elaborate instructions about what the priests were supposed to wear and what they were supposed to do in the tabernacle. What we should be hearing is an explanation about what God has done to bring himself near to his people and to bring his people near to him. And can I ask you this morning? Is there anything else you want more, Christian? Is there anything else you want more than the nearness of God? Is there? Is there anything else you really want more in life than God and his nearness to you? I mean, Asaph got it. He understood in his psalm Psalm 73, he starts out, surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my foot had almost slipped. When I looked out and I observed the prosperity, the way that all of those people are living, and it made me want to live that kind of life. I was envious. I wanted my life to be like that, but by the end of his psalm, he has come to his senses. Whom have I in heaven but you? And having you, I desire nothing on earth. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Give me that. I'm content with that. No matter what else I have or what else I don't have, I am satisfied. I'm actually satisfied with God's nearness. So... Let's look this morning at what God does to come near and provide for us the goodness of his nearness. That's the main thing that this tabernacle represents, God's nearness, his closeness. And it's pointing to Jesus in whom God draws near and continues to be near and dwell with us. In fact, Jesus is anticipated in so many ways here. Think about that table with the bread of presence on it, chapter 25, verse 25. 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Look at verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Here is a regular reminder to the people of God's providential care. God is saying, I am here, and I am here as one who gives life and sustains life. And centuries later, Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. Find the life that God has for you in me. Whoever comes to me shall never be hungry. Or think about that golden lampstand. You know, the tabernacle was a tent whose walls and ceiling was actually four layers thick. Did you know this? The inside layer, fine linen. If that's all there was to it, light could come in. But over that, there was this cloth woven of goat's hair. And over that, there was this tarp of ram's skins. And over that, another tarp, waterproof tarp, of the hides of sea cows. Imagine how dark it would be inside that tent. So God sets up a light. This ornate tree-shaped lampstand with buds and blossoms and fruit worked into it. And a place for seven lamps. It represents both the life and the light that God means his people to enjoy in his presence. And centuries later, John tells us, speaking about Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He was the true light, which gives light to everyone. And Jesus himself stands in the temple and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Listen, we could talk about every piece of furniture and all of the priestly garments and how they point ahead to Christ and how through Christ God makes it possible for his people to be near him. But I just want to zero in for a few minutes here on two things. Focus a little bit more closely, help us see and feel the weight. It's what I've been praying for for the last few days that we might together feel the weight of this massive truth that God is trying to help these Israelites understand his intention to be their God and be near them and what is necessary for that to happen. So let's look a little bit more closely, more fully first at the ark, the ark of the covenant. Look at chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark, of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. That's the Ten Commandments. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat? Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece. With the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. I'm going to pause right there because that verse is really important. But first, let's ask, why does Moses start with the ark? Why not start outside, make your way into the courtyard there where that bronze altar is, and then past that wash basin, and then into the tabernacle proper, past the table of the bread of presents and the lampstand, and through that curtain to the ark? Why start there? Well, the answer is that the ark was the most important thing in the whole tabernacle, I mean, in one sense, it's just a rectangular box made out of wood, overlaid with gold. It's four feet long, three feet wide, three feet high. It had a lid on it, overlaid with pure gold, with these two angels, with their wings outspread over the top. And on the top there, the place called the Mercy Seat, was where the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, would take some blood from a sacrifice bull in a bowl. And when he got in there, he would dip his finger into that blood and sprinkle it seven times on the mercy seat. Now, make sure you get the picture. Above the mercy seat was the place God said he would be. Look at verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And remember, under the mercy seat, inside the ark are the stone tablets with the 10 commandments on them, which the people of Israel swore that they would obey, which they do not obey. We'll see that as soon as next week. They could not obey. And therefore, they were under the judgment of breaking the covenant above the absolutely holy God, beneath the law that exposed Israel's sin, and in between, the blood that covers the transgressions of all, the blood that turns away the judgment from the guilty. Do you see? There is no mercy unless there is blood on the mercy seat god is above enthroned in majesty worshiped by angels utterly holy we are below breaking the law in so many ways and if we are to be saved something has to become has to come between his holiness and our sin which is precisely what jesus was doing on the cross Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And in the very next chapter of the book of Hebrews... Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Do you see what God did to make it possible for us to be near him? And let me show you a second thing. This time not in connection with the furniture of the tabernacle, but with the garments, the clothes the priests were to wear. That is described in great detail in Exodus chapter 28. Look with me there. Exodus 28. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother. And his sons with him from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make: a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make the holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So these are the garments. Six of them are named. Let's just focus in on two. The ephod and the breastplate. Verse 6, they shall make the ephod of gold of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel six of their names on the one stone and, on the na- and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord On his two shoulders for remembrance. Now remember that. Now verse 15. You shall also make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span in its length and a span in its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Now look at verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. Now, those stones that are named there, verse 17, 18, 19, 20, translators do their best to go from Hebrew to English. It's hard to be absolutely sure what stones these are, but one thing is very clear they are precious gems. They are valuable, they are treasured possessions. You see what God is saying? Inscribe the names of my people on those stones. Judah, Simeon, Reuben, Issachar, Gad, Dan, Zebulun, Naphtali, Asher, all of them. They are the people, not the stones. They are my treasured possession. You feeling this? A little? A little? the high priest shall bear the names of the people of God on his shoulders and on his heart. Whenever the high priest put on that ephod and that breastplate, he lifted the people onto his shoulders and over his heart and carried them into the presence of God. What a picture of Christ. What a picture of of Christ and it's just a picture Jesus actually does this he comes before God in his name but with our names on his shoulders and on his heart he carries us making himself responsible for securing our entrance into God's presence we enter safely because we rest on him I think about that parable that Jesus told about the lost sheep remember this How the good shepherd went out and found him. And Jesus makes a point when he's telling this story of saying he carried that sheep home on his shoulders. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And I think about the words of Jesus. When he was up on that hillside overlooking the city of Jerusalem... And he said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would take you like a mother hen and bring you close to my heart. We sing it. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. We sing it. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That ephod, that breastplate is speaking a powerful truth, pointing forward to Jesus and saying, this is what a great and perfect high priest will do. He will bear you on his shoulders and on his heart and he will bring you to God. Friends, this is the God who dwells with his people, the one who provides light in darkness, the one who provides nourishment to the spiritually hungry, the one who provides forgiveness to the guilty, the one who provides intercession for the needy, all of that through Jesus who does it all so that we can enjoy closeness with God. There are so many good things in life None of them compare to this. Family is good and can be such a sweet source of joy. Work is good and can provide joy and satisfaction. Physical health is good and we can rejoice in it. So many good things, nothing compares to the nearness of God. And I'm not standing here and saying that this morning out of some great, uninterrupted, personal experience. I've tasted enough to know, but my tasting is limited and sporadic and fitful, as I'm guessing yours is. So I'm not standing here saying, hey, I have this amazing experience of God's nearness all the time, every day. No, I'm saying this because I know it's true. How can it not be? We were made for this, for close relationship with God. That's what we exist for. That's where our true happiness lies. And God says, yes, you were made for fellowship with me, and I have done everything necessary for you to have that. Now, it will be shadowy and mixed in with all of the less than happy things of this life for now, but it is real, and it is here for us. God has done everything necessary for us to be near him, and we can neglect this reality or we can engage in this reality. We can live at a distance or we can draw near. So God calls us to be occupied with the things by which he makes his nearness known to us. Jesus, his word, his people, his mission but always in and by Jesus. And we can be, and should be, eagerly looking forward to experiencing a closeness with him that will be without any of the fog or uncertainty of this life, which we will do. We will know him as we are known. And it all makes me so grateful that God so loved the world that he sent his only Son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture you've given us here in Exodus. Pray you'd help us understand it and rejoice, not just in the copy, but in the reality. We thank you this morning for Jesus and all that he's done for us. In his name, amen.